Okay, I'd like to turn to Romans 4. I'm sure you find a good help when you follow in your Bibles. And we're looking at this under the title today, Abraham, an Example of Salvation, Part 1. Next week, we will get Part 2, God willing. When it comes to paying your bills, I wonder how you prefer to do it. Uh, do you prefer to do it in installments, maybe monthly installments, or do you prefer, prefer to pay your bills in one-off payments, your car insurance, or maybe even like a TV license, your electricity, you can do it in one-offs, or you can do it on monthly installments. Paul's teaching about salvation is that salvation is not something to be paid by continued installments. That's not how salvation is to be paid, yet that's exactly what some people thought by keeping the law they continue to add themselves to God's good books and hopefully have done enough to get right with God. No, Paul is teaching that salvation is to be done by a one-off payment. Not a payment by us, but the payment that Jesus Christ made when He died on the cross of Calvary. And as Paul, and he's acting here like a, a barrister, laying down his case in order to emphasize what he is teaching here, that salvation happens through trusting in what Jesus has done and not what we do, not in keeping the law, he now brings in the great hero of faith from the Old Testament, a man who was considered in many ways the father of Israel, Abraham. And he uses what the Bible teaches about Abraham in order to prove this point, that salvation is through faith in what Jesus has done, and not by installments of us keeping the law. And the first thing we see here is no boasting from Abraham in verses 1 to 5. And Paul is saying that Abraham was a man who had nothing to boast about in regards to salvation, because Abraham's salvation was not by the works of the law or good deeds that he had done, but his salvation was through faith. Look what he says in verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And that verse 3 there is quoting directly from Genesis 15, verse 6, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. As Abraham trusted in the Lord, trusted in the Lord's promises, righteousness was now placed on his account. Previously, Abraham was a sinner. He was a, a debtor before God because of his sin. So he was guilty before God, but that moment when he trusted in the Lord, he is now declared as being righteous, right with God through that faith. So it was not by any works that he had done. It was nothing he had done to earn this, but it was a gift of God's grace received through faith. And because it was something that God gave him as a gift. He had nothing to boast about. It wasn't what he had done. It was what God had given to him. So, he couldn't boast about it before God. 
Now, this follows on from what we were thinking about a number of weeks ago in Romans 3 and verse 27. You go back there to Romans 3 and verse 27. It says, Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And we said at that time, one of the ways you know that people really have grasped the gospel message, really understand it, is that boasting in regards to spiritual things, boasting is taken away. The person who truly grasps the gospel is a person who is humbled, who is humble before God and humble before others. It's a person who realizes the picture of Psalm 40 is very true in regards then. Psalm 40 speaks about the sinner being in a terrible pit, in the pit of destruction because of their sin. They're in this pit, which is, and in this pit, they're sinking deeper and deeper, and they can do nothing about it. They try and clamber out the sides of the pit. They just pull more mud on top of themselves, and they're getting deeper and deeper every time they try and do that. But then God, by His wonderful grace, God comes down into the pit, lifts them out of the pit when they couldn't get out themselves, and puts their feet on a firm place to stand. It is all of God. It is all of God's grace. God lifts us out of our sin through what Jesus has done on the cross. God alone is to receive all the praise boasting on our part. There's no place for it because it's all of God. It's a gift to us. Paul goes on here in verse 4 to use the picture of a worker's wages to further make this point. He says, now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. He's basically saying someone who works, who, who earns their wage, in a sense, of something to boast about, of something to talk about. Their wage is what they're entitled to. It's what they've earned. So they can, in a sense, bring a bit of honor to themselves. Well, I've done this. I deserve this. But he goes on and says, salvation is not this way. It's not something earned, but it's a gift through faith. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Paul is saying, you see, it's not like earning something. It's not like working for something. In that case, yes, you could get the credit. It's a gift which you receive through faith. Now, Paul is illustrating and he's emphasizing here what he's been teaching previously in Romans 3 about how we're justified, made right with God through faith alone. Now, Paul has to further emphasize that here. He has to reiterate this truth of being righteous through faith because he knows this goes against the, the natural tendency of people's hearts. We don't like this, that we can't rely on our own efforts. We don't want to accept by nature that we're hopeless and we're helpless in our sin. We want to think that we can do something about it, at least 
part of the way we can do something to earn salvation. We can do something to get out of our trouble, to get right with God. We can contribute some way. But the message of the gospel is we can do nothing. This, this tendency to believe in a, a salvation of works, it's, that's something that fits well with people. People like that idea that we can achieve it by our efforts. It was particularly a problem in Paul's day among the Jewish people because the Jewish rabbis taught that the Old Testament message was that you were right with God by keeping the law. They had misunderstood the Old Testament. They were saying, we can do this. We can get right with God if we're good enough and keep God's law. We can be right with God by what we do. But Paul says, no. And that's what he's saying here. You've got it wrong. Because think of Abraham. Think of our great hero, our great father of the nation. The Bible teaches that he wasn't justified by keeping the law. The Bible teaches that he was justified, made right with God through faith. You see, Paul is wanting people to be clear that there's only one way of salvation. There's only one way of getting right with God. It is through what Jesus Christ has done on the cross alone. It's not by what we do. It's not by our good deeds, by our works. It's trusting in Jesus alone. And so whether you're an Old Testament person or a New Testament person or someone who lives since the New Testament, there's only one way that anyone can be saved. There's only one way to heaven, and that is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. Have you come to that point? This is where the rubber hits the road. Have you come to that point to realize there's nothing you can do to earn your salvation? There's nothing you can do to get right with God. Jesus has done it. You have to come in faith to Him. Trust in Christ alone. So here we have no boasting from Abraham. But then secondly, we have clarity from David in verses 6 to 8. If Abraham and what he taught was not enough, Paul now brings in David, the, the greatest Israelite king and the great writer of all the Psalms. Look at verse 6. Just as, also, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. And he quotes here from Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This is wonderful, and it's also important here to consider what David is teaching. He's further emphasizing that salvation is not by works of the law, but salvation is by the action of God. Salvation and forgiveness is something that God does. Look at verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Now, who forgives? Who covers these sins? It's the action of God. God chooses to act. And we know that God chooses to act through what Jesus has done on the cross. God chooses to forgive lawless deeds. God chooses to cover up people's sins. That he says in verse 8, 
Blessed is a man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. God chooses not to count that sin against him. God chooses to bless sinners. God chooses to give them a right standing. Do you notice the emphasis there? It's all about God. It's God who does this. This salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is God's business. Salvation is never by our works of the Lord, our good deeds. Salvation is always through the action of God, through the forgiveness that God brings through what Jesus has done on the cross. Are you clear in this? Do you understand why Paul is going a great length, not just to say it, but to emphasize this again and again? This is so important because this is a matter not just of life and death. This is a matter of eternal life and eternal life. You can't get this wrong and go to heaven. Salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ alone. And it's a wonderful thing, this. One moment, you were a guilty sinner before God. Because of your sin, you had a debt which you could not pay. We've all sinned and fall short. But then when you hear the gospel, and when you come to that point of faith in Jesus Christ, your debt is clear. Your spiritual account is moved from the red into the black. It's now positive. You're now credited in God's sight as being righteous. Now, listen, you haven't suddenly become a, a good and better person. This is a legal thing. God, as you trust in Jesus, declares that you're now right with Him because you're covered with the beauty, the perfection, the righteousness of Jesus. Notice what is repeated in verses 6 to 8. There's a word that's repeated or a form of it. It is blessing or blessed. This speaks of the nature of God. This is the God who invites us to salvation. God sets His love on the undeserving. Not because of anything we have done or anything we will do, but because this is God's nature. This is God's love. This is God's grace. He loves to bless. Blessing is God's gift to people. It's a gift of grace. And this is a blessing in which we contribute nothing. Even the faith by which we grasp hold of Jesus and His salvation and forgiveness. Even that faith, the Bible teaches, is a gift given to us from God. It is God who's produced it in our hearts. It's all of God, all of God's blessing. There are two types of people, David is basically saying here. Two types of people. There are people whose sin is still accounted to them, hanging over them, and God will judge them and condemn them for that sin. Then there are those whose sin is forgiven, whose sin is not counted against them, who have been brought to faith in Jesus Christ. That's the difference. Not between those who are good and bad. It's those who are forgiven and those who are not. Clarity from David. And then the third point is sealed by circumcision in verses 9 to 12. Paul had previously taught back in chapter 3, and in many ways what chapter 4 is an expansion of what he has said briefly in, in chapter 3. Back in chapter 3, he said that both the circumcised and the uncircumcised are justified in God's sight through faith. That's back in 
verse 30 of chapter 3. But Paul, knowing the hardness of people's heart and how difficult it is these people to change from what they have grown up with and understood growing up in regards to salvation through being Jewish, through being circumcised, through keeping the law, Paul uses the truth of Abraham's circumcision to teach him the truth about salvation. Look what he says here in verse 9. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised? are also for the uncircumcised. For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. Now, Paul had previously quoted from Genesis 15 and verse 6, back in Romans 4 and 3, how Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So the question Paul is asking, was this statement of Abraham declared as being righteous in Genesis? Was it before or after he was circumcised? If it was after he had been circumcised, then you might think, well, his circumcision led to him being right with God. But if he was declared as being righteous before he was even circumcised. Then you know that circumcision had nothing to do with his salvation. Circumcision had nothing to do with him being righteous before God. And the answer is that Abraham was was circumcised many years after he had been declared righteous by God. If you go back into Genesis, in Genesis 15, he is declared as being righteous with God. But then it's years later in Genesis 17 that Abraham was then given the sign of circumcision, which is the cutting away of the the male foreskin. Paul's point is that Abraham's righteousness in no way came about through circumcision because circumcision happened after he was right with God. Righteousness came earlier in his life, and his righteousness with God came through faith alone. And so Abraham had lived for many years as a righteous man, as a man who was in a right standing with God. He did that for many years before he was circumcised. Now, we need to be very clear about this. Being righteous before God, yes, we have said it's not by keeping the law, it's not by any works we do, but also it's not by any ritual that is done to us. This righteousness is through faith in Jesus alone. Righteousness comes through trusting in the Lord, trusting in His promises. No ritual, and this is where people make the mistake today. Some people think today that by being baptized or taking communion somehow helps you be right with God. What a lot of rubbish. No ritual makes you right with God. That's what Paul is teaching here. But what then is the purpose of this circumcision that Abraham had? Why was he circumcised? If it didn't make him right with God, what was the point of it? Well, look there at the beginning of verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So it speaks of circumcision as a seal. Now, We don't use many seals today, still using some legal documents, but years ago when people were sending a letter, you know, they put some wax over the the outside of the envelope, 
and they might have used their ring to put an imprint to show that the letter was from them, and legal documents are done that way, even from a king. The king's ring is put on the, the warm wax to give the imprint. So it, the seal was proof that it was real. The seal was a proof that the document was genuine. So in saying that circumcision was a seal of the righteousness that Abraham through faith, it is saying that circumcision brought assurance to Abraham that he was right with God. Circumcision was an outward sign of the cutting away of sin that had happened in Abraham's heart when he came to faith in the Lord. Circumcision was a guarantee of what had happened within them when he came to that point of faith. And this is the same with baptism, which is the New Testament replacement to circumcision. And like circumcision, baptism is a sign and a seal. Baptism brings assurance of the cleansing that has happened within our hearts when we come to faith in Jesus. Both the, the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper are visible signs, signs you can see with your eyes, and they're there to strengthen you, to encourage you in your faith. Now, the signs don't save you, but they encourage you in your faith, in your faith in what the signs point to, to the cleansing that comes through Jesus Christ. And so, when someone has been baptized, it is encouraging them that what it points to, the cleansing, has happened in their soul. Now, remember who this sign of circumcision was given to in the Old Testament. It was given to believers and to their children. And now with the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, with the final shedding of blood for sin, it is right that the bloody sign of circumcision is now replaced with a bloodless sign in baptism. Likewise, the bloody sign of the Passover, the killing of a lamb, is replaced with the bloodless sign of the Lord's Supper. Now, who should this sign of salvation be given to today? If the sign of circumcision was given to believers and their children, the sign of salvation, who should the sign of baptism be given to today? It has to be to Christians and to their children. Think about this. For 2,000 years from the time of Abraham to the time of Jesus, the sign of salvation, circumcision, was given to believers and to their children. If now at the beginning of the New Testament era, and it's being replaced with baptism, if the sign is only to be given to believers and not to their children, you'd expect the Bible to say so. You think of this. Think of a Jewish mindset. The sign of salvation is given to a believer and to their children for 2,000 years. And now you're saying in this richer time of grace that the sign of salvation, the new sign of baptism, you'll only give it to believers and not to their children? Surely the Bible would say so. But what you find, there's not a paragraph, 
There's not a sentence. There's not a word that says that this sign should now only be given to believers. And indeed, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter talks about this sign of salvation, baptism, he says, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Now, think about this. In the Old Testament, the circumcision of a believer pointed to the cutting away of sin, it, the salvation they had received previously. In the Old Testament, the circumcision of a believer's child pointed to the cutting away of sin that their child needed in the future to be right with God. And in the same way, in the New Testament, the baptism of a believer points to the, the cleansing of sin that that believer has had through faith in the past. But when you baptize the child of a believer, it's pointing to the cleansing of sin that the child needs in the future. It means the same thing, whether it's a baby or an adult, whether it's circumcision of a child or the baptism of a child or an adult. It means the same thing. It points to the cleansing that has to come in Jesus Christ. Now, Paul says something else about this circumcision. I hope you're keeping with me here. Look at verse 11, what he says next in the second sentence there. The purpose was to make him, that's Abraham, the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. So he says, what has happened is that now believers who are not circumcised, that's us Gentiles, Abraham is our father. We're children of Abraham, the man of faith. We're children of all the promises that came to Abraham, including that God would be his God and the God of his children after him. So all the promises to Abraham come to us who believe now. We're children of Abraham. We are part of the new Israel. We're part of the people of God. And then he goes on, look what he says in verse 12. And to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So what he's saying here, listen, the important thing is for those who are circumcised, like Abraham, it's not just that they're circumcised. The important thing is they have the faith that Abraham had. And what indeed Paul is saying, we have to be careful here. We're not to trust in the ritual of circumcision. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to have the faith that Abraham had, which made him right with God. And this highlights for us today that while such things as baptism and the Lord's Supper are important, we should never place our faith in baptism and the Lord's Supper. We should place our faith in what baptism and the Lord's Supper point to, which is the cleansing that comes in Jesus Christ, the cleansing that comes through His shed blood and broken body. We must have faith in Christ, not in the sign. If you were in a desert and you were walking for a long period of time and you really, really were thirsty and you came across a picture of a big bottle of water 
What use would that be to you? The picture, the sign is no use. You need the reality. And Paul is saying, you know, there's these Jews, they have the sign of circumcision, which speaks about the cleansing, the cutting away of sin that Jesus brings. But it's no good. They need the reality. And you could have been baptized, but it's no good unless you have the reality that it points to, the cleansing that Jesus brings. Don't stop at the sign. Experience reality that Jesus brings through a living relationship with Him. Paul's focus here on Abraham and on David is to highlight this truth that salvation is only to be found in one place. Salvation is in Jesus Christ alone and what He's done on the cross. Salvation can only be received through faith in Jesus alone. There's no other way to be saved. There's no other way to heaven. This is why this gospel that we teach is so urgent. And if you are not trusting in Jesus here today, you are on the road to hell. If you die in the next few minutes and you're not trusting in Jesus, you will be in hell forever. That is why it's so urgent that now you come to Jesus. And this is why it's so urgent for those of us who are Christians that we pray for and we reach out to the lost with this gospel message because there's a world out there that is literally going to hell without Jesus. And if we as Christians do not bring the message to them, who will bring the message to them? So we need to be on our knees. We need to be pleading for God's grace so that people will find salvation, not in a church not in any ritual, but in Christ alone and what He has done on the cross. Let us pray. God, our Father, thank You so much for Your Word, and just thank You how Paul continues to emphasize here of we're right with You, God. We're justified. We're declared righteous through faith alone, not through any good deeds, not through the law, not through any ritual, but it's coming in that simple faith and saying to Jesus, there's nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. Oh, Father, for any who are here today or listening online who are not right with God, who are not trusting in Jesus, May this be the day when they have real saving faith and grasp hold of Jesus through that faith. And for those of us who are believers, oh, Father, forgive us for how we aren't urgent enough in our praying, not urgent enough in our witnessing, not urgent enough in seeking the lost. Oh, Lord, have mercy upon our family, our friends, our neighbors, our work colleagues, our schoolmates, our university colleagues. Have mercy upon the community around us in which so many are without Christ and therefore without hope. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.